All right, so we have recorder and we have some people here and we will upload this later. Um, knowing that part of what goes on in this class is interaction, um, please, please feel free to take yourself off of mute at any point just to ask me any questions. I know that's really what we typically enjoy about, the, I enjoy at least about this class, hearing what people have to say. So please continue to make this as interactive as possible. That would be great. Um, okay, let's jump in. So we are beginning the book of Shmuel, and we're just going to get through a couple of psukim today, really just going slowly. I think that would be the best way to go about this. So Pasuk Aleph, if you have a Navi in front of you, that's great. If you don't, you could get one on Sfaria.org and just go to the book of Shmuel, Shmuel 1, 1, 1. Okay, here we go. ish echad min mehar Ephraim. Okay, so we have a person who is from Ramah, um, ultimately from Har Ephraim, and we spoke about that a little bit last week. We'll come back to that in a moment. Ushmo Elkana, Ben Yerocham, Ben Elihu, Ben Tohu, Ben Tzuf, Ephrasi. Okay, his name is Elkana, and we have his lineage. As we pointed out last week, there is a clear contrast with another Levi who lived in Ephraim, who brought about devastation to the Jewish people in the episode of Pilegesh Begiva. And over here, we are learning that, don't think, the Barbanel says that all of Vim are bad, uh, nor is Har Ephraim a bad place. It's the exact same location, and on the contrary, some amazing things are going to come from here. Now, it's worth noting that um, Elkanah, is a descendant of Korach. Okay, we're going to get to Parshas Korach in a little while, and he is a descendant of Korach. And uh, there's a very interesting medrash that says that Korach was misled because he had a prophecy, and he recognized in his prophecy that his descendants would be greater than Moshe and Aaron. And we know that from the fact that the pasuk says, we say this on Friday nights, Moshe Aaron bechohanav u'shmuel shemo. Right, and there's a certain equation there between Moshe Aaron on the one hand and Shmuel on the other, demonstrating that there's some equality between the both of them. Um, and so Korach saw this in some form of a vision, and therefore he thought that he was far greater than Moshe and Aaron. Of course, that was a mistake. His descendants were great, um, but uh, really Korach was mistaken in his rebellion. Uh, there are, interestingly enough, a, a number of similarities between Shmuel and Moshe. They're both called Tov. God calls out to him the first time using that same endearing term of Moshe, Moshe, and Shmuel, Shmuel. Um, okay, and they are not only prophets, but they're also rulers. They're both Levium. Anyway, there's a lot there. Uh, just going back to the Pasuk itself, Ephrasi is also a term for nobility. We'll see that in the in Megillas Rus when we get there. Um, but he is someone who is noble. He's an important person, and we'll see some of that as we continue. So, Vilo, and to him, to Elkanah, Shtenashim, he had two wives. Shem Achas Chana, Vishem Hashenis Penina. So he has two wives. One is Chana, one is Penina. Vahi Lefnina Yeladim, Penina had children. And Chana does not have any children. Okay, he has two wives. Um, you'll notice that throughout Tanakh, um, it is typically, actually exclusively, people of nobility, people of importance, people of great wealth who have more than one wife. Otherwise, having more than one wife is seen to be unacceptable. Uh, we've spoken about this numerous times, um, that there seems, the, the understanding is that there is some element of economics over here. And a person who's very wealthy, a person who could support more than one wife, does have more than one wife. A person who cannot does not have. Um, and that's the rationale why we only find important people having concubines or more than one wife. Okay. 
this person would go from his city, miyamim yamima, from time to time or from year to year, he would go again from year to year um, to sacrifice to God in Shiloh. And those terms, by the way, miyamim yamima and Shiloh should sound familiar. Why? Uh, because those were the exact same terms that were used in regards to the dance. What we, uh, according to Chazal, was uh, the tuba of dance. So that dance took place. Again, it was introduced, miyamim yamima. Again, this is the end of Shoftim for those of you who are joining us for that. Uh, miyamim yamima, there was this dance in, um, in Shiloh, miyamim yamima. Again, that same terminology. So over here, there's that link. And over here, from miyamim yamima, from year to year, Elkanah would go to sacrifice to God in Shiloh, Visham Shnevene Eli, and there there were the two children of Eli, Chafni Ufinchas, Kohanim Lashem. Again, the other children's names were Chafni and Pinchas, and we're going to hear more about them soon. Now, it's interesting that the Torah highlights the fact that he is going to Shiloh on a yearly basis. Uh, that seems to be, that, that's a mitzvah. You have to go, you have to be Ola Laregel, you have to go to Yerushalayim or wherever the base of Mikdash is every year, um, more than once a year, three times a year. Uh, so why is the Torah emphasizing this? So there are a couple of different approaches over here, and they're, I think they're all significant. The Ralbag suggests that he would go once a year with his entire family. And that's really what's being emphasized over here, because we're going to see that he's not going alone, but he's going with his entire family, um, which is obviously speaks to his greatness, right? Meaning the mitzvah of Aliyah Laregel, the, old, the, the actual mitzvah of going to to the base of Migdash is exclusive for males, and women do not have to come along, children do not have to come along, or young children do not have to come along. So one thing we immediately see from Elkanah over here is that he was sensitive to the education of his family. That's the simplest way of looking at this, and the significance is not so much that he went, it's what's going to follow that he went with his family, or he would go on a yearly basis with his family, three times a year he would go himself, once a year he would go with his family. Uh, the Radak, emphasizes a different word over here. It's not so much that he went, but that, it's, that he went me'iro, he went from his city. And what the Radak sees in those words is that he would go and encourage the people of his city to go. Um, he actually takes it a step further and suggests that he would take a different path every year to encourage others to come along with him. So the emphasis is not so much that he went, it's where he's coming from. It's that he's coming from his city and as time goes on, he keeps on going and coming from different places, each time a different place. Why? To encourage other people to go, which obviously has a very interesting implication. If Elkanah is going out of his way to encourage others to come, what does that sound like? You're all on mute, so I shouldn't ask you questions. Uh, but what it sounds like is that other people are not going, right? And we, we already pointed, this, pointed to this at the end of Shoftim, where this also sounded to be the case, uh, seemed to be the case, because the end of Shoftim speaks about the directions. Where is Shiloh? What do you mean, where is Shiloh? It's like saying, where is Yerushalayim? No, people were not going to Shiloh. Uh, people were not going to the base of Migdash, and uh, the, well, again, the Mishkan at the time, and therefore Elkanah is someone who, A, takes his family, putting these ideas together, but also is encouraging other people to go. He's a leader, he cares about his own family, and he cares about all of the nation, and he's trying to lead them, inspire them with his own actions. Now, why aren't people going to Shiloh? The simplest answer is that people are just less religious, um, and we already saw this. Um, we already saw this in um, we already saw this in the book of Shoftim. That that's the simplest answer. The Barbanel makes an amazing observation. He points out that in the verse itself, it tells us why people are not going to Shiloh. 
It's actually told at the end of the Pasuk. This Pasuk really has two separate ideas which seem to be lumped together. One is that he goes to Shiloh, and two, Visham Shnevene Eli, that these two children of Eli are there. What, what does one have to do with other? Put that in a separate Pasuk. We don't need to know that now at all. We're later going to learn about them. But says the Barbanel, you know what the Pasuk is telling us? It's telling us that most people were not going to Shiloh because of these two people. We're going to learn more about them. They were really... Well, we'll see different versions, different approaches, but they were clearly not very good people at all. And um, what the Torah is emphasizing over here is despite the fact that Chafni and Pinchas were there, despite the fact that these people were there and causing others to not go, still Elkanah would go and he'd encourage others to go, etc., etc. So that's the meaning of this Pasuk in its entirety, and that also could explain to us why there were not so many people going. When you have poor leadership, it scares people away, and that perhaps is what's going on over here. Okay. Vayayom, Pasuk, Dalet. Vayayom, and it was the day, Vayizbach, Elkanah, and Elkanah brought his karban. Uh, we know when we are Ola Regal, there are karbanos that we are mandated to bring. People oftentimes would bring more karbanos. So Elkanah is bringing karbanos as he's expected to do at this time. And what do you do with those karbanos? You take the meat and you share it with your family. So what does he do? Vinasan lifnina ishto. He gives to Penina, Ulachal Banah Uvnoseha Manos, and he gives portions to all of her sons and daughters. Okay? So Penina again has many children and he gives them all portions. Uh, interestingly enough, the Midrashim actually suggests that the day this takes place is Shavuos, and that's something to think about, again, as we get closer to Shavuos. I know that seems a far way off, uh, but there is something about the story that relates to Shavuos, and the answer is obvious, but something to, to keep in the back of our mind, and maybe we'll revisit soon as well. Ulechana and Tuchana. Yitain mana achas. He would give only one portion. Apayim. Okay, we'll come back to understand what that word means, apayim, we'll come back to that, ki eschana ahev, because he loved chana, vashem sagar rachma, but God closed her womb. Okay, so he gives chana one portion, he loves chana, and God closed her womb. Okay, so let's try to understand this passage. What does the word apayim mean over here? So Rashi says apayim from the word, um, erech apayim means face, and the idea is that he gave it to her with a friendly face. He gave it to her with love, again, because he loves her. The Pasuk reads very nicely, according to Rashi. He gives her a portion with a friendly face. It's not just what you give to people, it's how you give it. And this Pasuk, according to Rashi, is seen in a very positive light. Um, the Radak suggests a payim means a double portion. And he gives her, actually, even though it says mana achas, but a payim is qualifying that, saying he actually gives her more, again, because he loves her. The Barbanel sees in this verse a really different message that he did so with frustration or with difficulty. A payim um, from, uh, yes, a face, but a frustrated face. And the idea is that he's giving it to her with frustration. Because Why? Because he loved her so much and they couldn't have children. So there was a certain frustration. Every time he interacted with her, there was this complicated uh, explosion of, 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 of emotions over here. On the one hand, he loved her so much. And at the same time, she couldn't bring about what he wanted so badly from her and with her. And that was to create a family with her. And therefore, his interactions with her are strained. And I think although the read of the Pasuk is a little bit more difficult, it will actually follow, I think, that Abarbanel's approach uh, as we continue reading. Okay, so let's keep on reading again. So we're introduced to Alkana. Uh, some versions see in him a very, very positive and loving approach to his wife. Others see some form of an inner struggle, and we don't really know how much of that inner struggle is being expressed to um, 
to his wife. Okay. V'chiyasata tsarasa gam kas ba'avur harima. Here we read something very difficult, very hard to read. And that is that her tsara, the word tsara literally means uh, oppressor or tsar from the word like uh, pain. And that the word tsara or tsar is actually the universal term for a, I guess the word would be a co-wife. Whenever there are two women married to one man, they are called tsaros to one another. Um, the reason is quite obvious. They would typically antagonize one another. That is the reason that Rabbeinu Gershom came along about a thousand years ago and, and banned the marriage, you know, polygamy because it caused so much tension within families because they were literally tsaros for one another constantly. And you could only imagine how complicated their family dynamics were and how that impacted the children. Um, anyway, so that's the term. The term is a tsar. So Penina, her, her tsara, would anger her, would anger her, okay? Ba'avur harima, in order that she should complain. What does that mean, in order that she should complain? And again, let's finish the end of the Pasuk. Ki sagar Hashem ba'ad rachma, because God closed her womb. What's going on over here, right? So again, let's just read that again. Um, she would anger her, anger Chana, Penina would anger Chana, in order to make her, in order to make Chana complain, because God closed her womb. The way the Gemara understands this, and it does read um, well into the verse, is that Penina had good intentions. Okay? She had good intentions, and she would antagonize Chana in order to make Chana complain and to turn to God with pain. Okay? Now, the fact that she had good intentions does not justify her actions. It's explaining that she did so with good intentions, but she was terribly guilty in doing so. So much so that uh, Chazal understand, and we'll see an indication later on, that the many children that Penina had, according to our, 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 our tradition, actually were lost to her. She ended up losing all those children um, afterward, and that was a punishment for antagonizing Chana. Although those were great intentions, we all know the famous saying about good intentions. So yeah, it is true that she's trying to get Chana to Davin, and the way she's going to get her to Davin is by antagonizing her. But again, that is not an appropriate approach. That is not... Uh, it goes without saying. Okay. Now, in case you're not sold on her good intentions, there's one more very, uh, indication of her good intentions. Let's read Pazakzayin. And she would do this year after year. When they would go to the house of God. So she would anger her. Now, let's try to understand that. What, only then? Only when they go to the house of God to antagonize her? What about every other day of the year when they're back at home in, 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 in Harafraim? She went to antagonize her then? Only then? And the answer is yes. <laughs> only, well, that's what the Pasuk is saying, clearly. That she would only do this when they would be Bevesa Hashem, in the house of God, right? She would do this in, in, when they were in the house of God. Why? The answer is obvious. She's in the house of God and she's trying to encourage Chana to turn to Hashem. And, and again, you have to appreciate she's successful. Right? Um, as, as we know, we know the end of the story. She's going to turn to God. So Penina is successful, but it's still the wrong thing to do. Okay? Um, you know, life is not as black and white as, as that. So she is successful in, in, her, in her attempt. Uh, we see clearly from the Sukkim she has very good intentions, uh, but history and Chazal ultimately tell us that that is still completely inappropriate and she should have not done so. Okay, let's finish the Pasuk. By the way, please feel free to unmute yourselves at any point and, and pipe up um, with any thoughts, questions, or just 
to say hello. Okay, uh, and she would cry and she would not eat. Okay, um, Elkanah says to her, Elkanah, uh, um, her husband, says to her, Why are you crying? And why don't you eat? And why is your heart bad? Meaning, why are you brokenhearted? And let's read what he says. Hello, anochi tovlach me'asarabanim. Am I not better to you than ten children? Now, what do you make of that? Hello, anochi tovlach me'asarabanim. Am I not better to you, greater to you than ten children? Now, it's clear that he's trying to soothe her, um, but it probably would have been better had he said that you are better to me than ten sons. Right? That would have made her probably a little bit more appreciated, felt a little more appreciated. Instead, he focuses on himself. I am better to you. Look, we have our relationship. What she really needed to hear was, you know, I still love you despite the fact that that there are no children over here. You are better to me than 10 sons, but that's not what he says. Um, and it's it's interesting to point uh, out sort of Amnon Bazak, who has a, a book on the book of Shmuel, uh, points out that in some ways, um, you know, Penina and Elkanah are both interacting with Hannah. And on face value, Penina is clearly the greater and more obvious enemy. She's, she's antagonizing her and making things terrible. Uh, but when we think about it and think about what ultimately happens in the story, in some ways, Elkanah is more of a threat to her, right? Because Penina is encouraging her to go ahead and daven. Again, albeit in the totally incorrect, wrong fashion. Elkanah is trying to calm her down. Right, so what is that? What, what would happen if Elkanah is listened to and Penina is not? She would never have gone to Davin, and, and history would have been very different, perhaps. Right. So yes, it's true. Um, Penina is the more obvious enemy, but in some ways, Elkanah is actually, in some ways, more of a threat to Penina's ultimate goal. Okay. So let's see what happens. Vatakam when Chana gets up, after she eats and after there is drinking. Okay, it's not necessary that she is drinking, uh, but she does eat, so she does listen to her husband, but not entirely. Sitting on the chair by the doorway of the house of God. Okay, now, um, as we pointed out last week in our introduction, the notion of sitting by the doorway certainly has a certain imagery of authority and um an indication that he is really in charge, and we're going to come back to that um, to see if um, to see what happens to that chair and him sitting by that chair. Well, please keep that in the back of your mind. So she goes to Shiloh after she eats. Vihimaras nafesh, and of course she is um, uh, literally her soul is bitter. She's she's brokenhearted. She's completely broken, despite the fact that she ate. Right, despite the fact that she was soothed on some level, she is completely broken. Vatispalel al Hashem. She turns, she prays to Hashem, and she cries. Okay? Um, now, there are a number of things to say over here. First and foremost, there are many, many similarities between Chana and the many other barren women in Chazal, in Tanakh, in the Torah. Uh, but the one you'll find the most comparisons to is none other than... Anyone want to, want, to, want to quickly unmute yourself now? And the quick, the one who have the quickest, the most um, similarities to is uh, actually Rachel. Um, the terminology that's used over here, this is again Rabbi Amnon, Amnon Bazak's point, that there are the most similarities in terminology between her and Rachel. 
Um, however, there is a very, very important difference, and perhaps the similarities are there to draw our attention to the difference. What does Rachel do when she doesn't have children? The first thing she does is experience jealousy. She then turns her frustration to her husband, to Yaakov, and we know there's a interesting dialogue there. Then she goes ahead and gives a concubine to Yaakov. Then she goes ahead and buys the dudaim, the mandrakes or whatever, jasmine, whatever it may be, from her sister for the sake of fertility. And then she davens, right? She takes many, many, many steps and perhaps too many steps for, I don't know if We've learned this together, some, some of you we have. Uh, the story of Rachel really is a, a developing, a person, a character who changes. But she starts as someone who really doesn't turn to Hashem that naturally. That's a lot of the dialogue between her and Yaakov. Yaakov's telling her off, saying, why are, you, why, why are you turning to me? You have to turn to Hashem. And that's a lesson that takes her a little bit of time to learn. Um, but, but eventually she does. But with Hannah, she immediately turns to Hashem. There are those those steps along the way, the jealousy, the concubine, the mandrakes, all that. Hannah skips all that. She goes immediately to Hashem. That's point one. Now, another thing we want to keep in mind as we read the next passage over here is that Hannah's tefillah is seen as the paradigm of all tefillah. We know most famously uh, Hannah's unique way of davening, which was unique then, is that she whispered or she was inaudible to, to everyone else there. And we learned from there how to daven, Shmon Esrei, Adamida, that we don't say things out loud. That's the most obvious and well-known. But the truth is there's so much more there in terms of the lessons of tefillah. So I'm going to highlight just a few of those. The first thing which, which is worth noting is that what triggers her tefillah, what triggers her heartfelt, true tefillah, it's when everyone around her, the people in her life, the people who should be looking out for her and that she should be connected to, her, again, co-wife, maybe yes, maybe no, but that's family, and of course her husband, who does love her, but can't connect to her, can't really soothe her. And so her tzfila is triggered by this deep, deep loneliness. It's that sense of being completely, completely alone. And in that loneliness, she's able to turn to Hashem because True tefillah is when we really, truly stand alone. It's not just the silence or the personal amida. It's the sense of, I have nothing and no one else. And, and no one fully understands me. And no one could fully redeem me. Not just physically, but emotionally, of course, spiritually, other than Hashem. That's what true, the essence of true tefillah is being able to turn to Hashem from that place of, as we've spoken about so many times, a place of, of brokenness, but also specifically being completely, completely alone and, and turning to Hashem in that in that moment of loneliness and 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 and, and reaching out to him, you know, as, as Rav Soloveitchik wrote beautifully, it is the lonely being turning turning to the alone being or the other lone being. I forget exactly how he frames it, uh, but there is that sense that only there are we able to true the only being that could truly understand us, who we could truly release all of our feelings, our emotions, our our, our fears and our joys. All of that, the only being that could fully understand that is Hashem. And we see that in Chana, she's surrounded by people, but they don't fully connect to her. And, and therefore, she turns to Hashem in that recognition of that deep, deep existential loneliness. Okay, let's go further. We'll make other observations about the uniqueness of her tefillah. So, Vatidor Neder Vatomar, she takes a vow and says, okay, Hashem Tzivakos, 
God of the hosts, okay? It's a term that speaks to God's mastery over so much. If you see, and ra'otira is, by the way, uh, presumably building upon the double terminology that's used whenever we refer to a almana, a yasom, uh, someone who is an, an orphan or someone who is a widow, the Torah speaks in a double terminology. The Katzka Rebbe beautifully, beautifully comments. The reason that the Torah speaks about a double terminology about the pain of the of these people is that their pain is is doubled. That you know, part of the reason they feel their pain, any type of pain, is that there's this always this double element. It's not just whatever pain they're feeling, but then there's a second part of it, which says the reason I'm experiencing this pain, the reason people are treating me this way, the reason I- I'm not being treated the proper respect is because of my situation. So it's not just the negativity that they're experiencing, whatever it is that they're experiencing, but it gets doubled. Um, and that is true for anyone who feels marginalized by the community. So. Uh, Chan over here is 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 you know part of a community, but she also feels so alone. And God, she's saying, God, Ra'otira, I want you to see, but not just see superficially. Of course, I don't have a child. That that's bad. No, Ra'otira, there's the deeper seeing. How how deep the sense of 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 impoverishment is. Obviously, not physical impoverishment, but the 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 sense of of want and need. If you see that God, Uzchartani, and you remember me, and you don't forget your maidservant. And you give to your maidservant Zera Anashim, children. I will give this child to God all of the days of his life. And he will never shave his hair. Um, obviously, there's a certain similarity between him and Shimshon, who is the last of the Shoftim. And here we have the next shofate, at least most important shofate, and that is uh, Shmuel. Um, It's interesting that the only thing mentioned is the hair, not the other elements of of the Nazirus. Um, Hold off on discussing that now, but I want to just focus on the tefillah itself and and share another point about tefillah and specifically about what we learn from Chana, again, who is the paradigm of what true tefillah is. And this is a point that Rabbi Tatz makes based on a passage in the Nefesh HaChaim of Rechaim Balazhin. He says like this, he he makes the following point. He says, you know, there's some faiths where quieting the self is paramount. You know, uh, Buddhism, for example, the whole goal is to, to... to make our personal existence um, completely null, you know, I don't, I don't have an ego. I don't have anything. There's no me whatsoever. Judaism doesn't believe in that. We believe that we do have unique individual needs. Our goal is to take those needs, uh, realizing first our deepest desires, understanding ourselves, assessing them, and trying to channel them and use them in our service of Hashem. Right, famously, or of Samson Rafael Hirsch speaks about the process of tefillah. He makes the beautiful point that the prayer, the term for prayer is, is reflexive. It's something which impacts us. And the idea being that we are um, doing something to ourselves. We are judging ourselves, many suggest. Pulilim, uh, that's from the terminology that, that's used for judge. The point is that we are judging ourselves. And when we daven, we we're saying we're not, we, we talk about things which are our real needs. Right? Um, you know, it, it's a funny thing when we think about our Shmon Asrei. It's, it's very much about the things that are important to us. God, give me Parnasa, Baruch Aleinu. God, give me health, right? What, what else is on people's minds right now? God, give me health. These are things which are, are, are basic needs. God, give me wisdom. Give me all the things that are important to me. But what we're doing is we're saying, yeah, it's not just about me, though. Yes, these are the things which I naturally want. 
And now in the process of davening, what I'm trying to do is elevate those needs. Say it's not just my health for me, for my, my own personal good, but because I'm going to use that health for the right reason. I'm going to use the wealth, what you give me, for the right reason. That's what's going on over here. And that's exactly what Hannah does to the extreme. What does Hannah do? She says, God, I, I'm a mother. I want to be a mother. This is my maternal instinct or drive that desires to have a child. This is the most basic need. I, I want it. That's just natural to me. But God, it's not about me alone. I want this so this child could be in your service. Now, when we ask for health, we say, so I could spend some of my day to serve you. But Hannah, again, is the extreme and the, the quintessential tefillah, the paradigm. She's saying, I want it because it's important to me, but I'm truly going to give this child over to you. That is tefillah. It's the taking something which is a deep primal desire for her having a child and giving it to God in the most literal sense. Again, we oftentimes can't go to that same extreme, but we need to on some level say, God, I want parnasa, I want health. Whatever it is that I'm asking for, there has to be some justification. There has to be some for you, Hashem. There has to be something where we're saying, and I'm going to give it to you. Again, maybe not always the same level, but this is why Chana's tefillah is so um, important and so much of a paradigm for our tefillahs. This is why our Shemona Esrei revolves around our basic needs, because what we're doing is what Chana did acknowledging them, understanding our needs, and channeling them to Hashem. Okay. And when she increased um, her tefillos in front of God, Ve'eli Shomer is Pia, Eli is watching her. Okay. Again, Chana is speaking from her heart, um, and only her lips are moving, and her voice is not heard. And as we pointed out, this was a unique type of prayer at the time. Eli thinks by watching her that she is shikor, she is drunk. She is not able to daven. Okay, um, let's keep on reading. Eli says, For how long will you get drunk? Okay, he jumps to judgment over here. Hasirius yinich malayach. His job is to be the, the guard. He says, you remove your wine. You can't be davening intoxicated. Vatan Chana and Chana responds, Vatomer, and she says, Lo Adoni, Adoni, no, my master, Ishak Shas Anochi, I am someone of a hard heart, hard spirits. Notice that the terminology changes constantly in terms of her inner state. Uh, clearly, there's some so many deep emotions over here. There are many terms that have been used to describe her um, her sad state and broken state. Again, I didn't drink anything. As we saw earlier, she ate, but the drinking was done by everyone else. I am pouring out my hearts to, to God. And we'll finish with this last passage because I think there's something fascinating here. Don't allow your maidservant to be um, again, a someone without a yoke. It's because of the abundance of my speech and my anger, my frustration that I've spoken until now. Okay, so so two things. One is that she um, is speaking with incredible amount of humility to Eli, which I guess it could be expected, but to the point that the word Adoni and Amaschar, the same term, terms that she used in regards to God, she is right now in a very, very sad and challenged state. Nonetheless, she's able to speak with poise and respect to Ailey. I don't think we should belittle that. She's in a lot of pain. We would not expect someone to speak with that that much um, deference, but she still does. But Rav, again, Rav Amnon Bazak makes the beautiful point. Um, this goes back to our inter introduction, the usage of terms. She says, don't consider me to be a bat blial, someone lacking in a yoke. That is the exact same term 
which is used, Blial is the same terminology that is going to be used in regards to Ailey's children. Uh, spoiler alert, we'll see that Ailey's children are going are not the best people. They are described as Blial lacking in a yoke. They are people who don't have limits or restraints. And what's the big critique? In regards to Ailey's children, not so much what they did, but the fact that Ailey does not reprimand them. So what's happening over here? Over here, Ailey is reprimanding Chana and considering her to be a Bas Blial, someone without a yoke. But when it comes to his own children, he is silent. He doesn't acknowledge their true Blial state, their true lacking in yoke state, and he doesn't reprimand them. And because of that, um, he loses his stature, he loses his um, his his his, um, his role as Shofate, and ultimately it's passed on to whom? To Chana's son, right? So there's a lot that just happened over here. Um, let's just quickly review. We'll start with Ailey, just because it's the last thing we spoke about. Ailey is the judge right now, uh, but we're already getting some indication of what some failings are over here. Failings in terms of his ability to reprimand appropriately. He is not treating Chana with the right sensitivity. He's reprimanding where he shouldn't, and he's not reprimanding where he should in his own family. Okay. In terms of Chana, she's surrounded by people who may be well-meaning, but ultimately are not really soothing her in any way, um, which again, for the sake of our narrative, is a good thing, but obviously uh, looking at it from Chana's perspective is a terrible thing, and, and what we really, really learned the most from is her tefillah. It is the paradigm of tefillah. It is not only silent, but it's a tefillah that comes out of a state of deep existential loneliness. It's a tefillah that doesn't ignore the self. It acknowledges the self. It acknowledges our needs, our most basic needs, and what it does is it channels those needs, and that's exactly what Chana does. Okay, we will pick up um, God willing, next week. Please stay tuned. I hope uh, possibly in person. I, I don't know. And uh, things are developing. Everyone should just be safe. Thank you for taking the time to get on this call. It's such a chus for all of us in our community and the communities worldwide for everyone to have a refuah shalema and for this virus to be contained as soon as possible. Have a great Shabbos and um, take care.